It's my prerogative. Or not. My reputation goes down like this, we'll know why. <laughs> Sometimes in the middle of class I say, anyway, moving on. I think you like pause recording, so you have to talk. Well, see, no, because sometimes I do that, and it, it sounds like if you're listening online, like you missed something, but the recording was paused, but it actually wasn't. And sometimes it really was, and you missed something, and you just never know if you weren't here. Okay, this is Tanya class. And you're all asking yourselves, where are my Tanyas? Right? That's what you're asking yourselves? Because we're in Tanya, so you should Not all have yet. a Tanya. What? Tanya. So, I will tell you one fact, and then you will tell me why you don't have Tanya's, okay? We are going to be starting with chapter 16. Tanya has 53 chapters, and we're going to be starting with chapter 16. So now, you tell me why you don't have Tanya's. Can you repeat that last part? We're going to start with chapter 16. Now that you know that we're going to start with chapter 16, I want you to tell me why you don't have copies of Tanya in front of you. Did that explain why you don't have a copy in front of you, though? There is a chapter 16. You didn't bring it. No? That's not why. You don't need to know anything about the themes in chapter 16 to answer this question. Have you learned chapter 15, 14, 13? Some of you yes, and some of you are nodding your heads no. They're shaking your heads no. What? This is a nod, this is a shake of the um, Would it be really nice of me to start at chapter 16 without giving you any context and background and catching you up to speed to chapter 16? Would that be a nice thing to do? No. And I'm known for being nice. That's yes. like, you know, it's my, my reputation. So today's class and possibly tomorrow, depending on how this goes. We are not going to be learning chapter 16. We are going to be doing an overview of everything up to 16. That way when we start chapter 16, we'll all more or less be on the same page. Now you may be asking yourself, why are we starting with chapter 16? Why don't you start with chapter one and then not have to do this whole overview thing? And the answer to that is, if I had to start at the beginning every time we have like a beginning of a semester, then I would be starting at chapter one what, twice a year, three times a year. Um, and I have to be nice to myself also. So what I've been doing is I've been just going in order. And every, and every time we start a new semester, I just summarize where we're holding up until then. So if you want to hear the classes on chapters 1 through 15, um, they've been so kindly recorded, sometimes with interruptions, sometimes without. Um, so that's what we're doing, okay? Hey. I'm going to give a general overview of A, Hasidus, B, Tanya as a work of Hasidus, and C, the main themes that have been covered in the first 15 chapters of Tanya. Will I get through all that in one class? Hard to tell. If it takes two classes, it's not the end of the world. And then when we're going to actually start, you all have copies of the actual text, and we'll go through line by line and try and get through chapter 16, and maybe even 17 and 18, we'll see. Good? Okay. Um, one side note, Tanya classes on Mondays and Tuesdays. Wednesdays is questions and answers. Questions and answers, it takes the format of you ask questions, and I bravely attempt to answer them, um, the questions, without actually knowing what the questions are ahead of time. 
And if you don't have questions, then we sit here in awkward silence. Unpleasant. Um, so please think of questions in advance. Okay. Good. Chassidus. Chassidus is a very difficult thing to pin down. Um, and I'm going to give a brief description of Chassidus. And the primary purpose of this definition is, or this description of Chassidus is to understand um, the context in which the work, the time was written. So that means I'm going to be emphasizing certain things about Chassidus and de-emphasizing other things in order to, that this sense of Chassidus can help us put the time in perspective. So don't think of this as like the final word on what is Hasidus, okay? There are many different areas of Torah. We obviously have the, the, the five books of Moshe, the Chumash. We have the broadly the written Torah, the Tanakh. We have the oral Torah, we have the Talmud. We have different genres in Torah. We have the stories, we have parables, we have halacha, Jewish law, we have ethics, we have mysticism, we have all sorts of different things. Chassidus is a relatively recent aspect of Torah. And now what I mean by that is not that someone invented Chassidus. In general, we have a rule that if you invent something, it's not part of Judaism. Judaism is supposed to be God-given. Um, but something can be present in a very latent way and only revealed, made manifest later on. Um, if you want to just think about it using science and technology, um, people don't really invent um, things in the sense that they didn't exist before. They simply discover what was really latent in nature all along, right? Electricity wasn't um, invented in the late 17, early 1800s, right? Electricity's been around forever since God created the world. People just figured out how it works and how to utilize it. In a similar sense, Everything in the Torah was already part of the Torah from the beginning, but at different points it becomes more manifest and more revealed. So what is this part called Chassidus? Chassidus started out um, primarily as an experiential thing, meaning Chassidus, the notion of studying Chassidus, if you were to speak to some of the original Chassidim, would seem to be a ridiculous idea because Hasidus is something that, it's, it's a way you experience something. It's a way that the Torah changes how you relate, how you, how you feel about yourself, about God, about observing mitzvahs, about day-to-day -day life. It's not something that you try to understand. Okay. So if I had to give a simple analogy, I would say, think of something like art or music. While it's true you can study these things in an intellectual and academic way, the primary way we, we interact with these things is we try to experience them. We listen to the music and let it affect us, right? We, we look at the artwork and we gaze at it and we let it move us. And so Hasidus, um, unlike, say, Talmud, unlike, say, the weekly Torah reading, is primarily about bringing a person to a particular kind of spiritual experience. Okay. And one of the things that differentiated Hasidus from other aspects of Judaism which had an experiential component was that Hasidus is, is um, not elitist. So there are other, other aspects of Judaism which do place an emphasis on cultivating kind of a spiritual experience, but they are, by definition, um, not for everybody. The idea being is that a person has to achieve a certain level of 
piety, of self-mastery, of Talmudic scholarship, and all these other things. And then the idea is that you can then pursue this other thing of trying to have these higher spiritual experiences. Um, the most obvious form of this would be prophecy, right? trying to become a prophet. Um, but you can also find this, this idea in, in other things like some of the schools of the Kabbalists. But the idea of, of a deeply spiritual and experiential focus on Judaism that is supposed to be for everybody, even for people who are um, uneducated, even people who are relatively um, simple-minded, simple that was something that was relatively controversial at the time and still retains some degree of controversy. Now, the, the universal dimension of Hasidus, um, it's, not just a, it's, it, it, it's not just an arbitrary thing. It's not that, okay, the Hasidic leaders felt that spirituality should be available to everybody because they were very democratic, they were very into egalitarianism. It actually has to do with some of the, the fundamentals of what Hasidus is about. Hasidus is about that every Jew has an innate connection to God. And by being in touch with that innate connection to God, they can encounter God in everything. Now you can't really buy into that and also think that that's something only for the elite. Right? No, that would be self. That would be contradictory to say every Jew has an innate connection with Hashem that enables every Jew to experience God in every aspect of their life, but only special people should have access to this. Right? That's a contradiction in terms. Now, if you were saying something, it's a spiritual experience which is an achievement, which is something which is not innate to the person. Well, then you could say, okay, well, this is a very lofty achievement, and not everybody has the capacity, not everybody has the abilities necessary to achieve this. Right? So the, the spiritual experience of Hasidus is a fundamentally different kind of spiritual experience than that of the Kabbalists or that of the prophets. It's about drawing out something innate in every Jew rather than achieving or attaining something that is on, I hate this expression, we'll use it anyway, a higher level. And in fact, the Baal Shem Tov, who was the founder of the Hasidic movement, pointed out that sometimes the greatest uh, scholar, the most pious individual, has a harder time accessing that innate connection because they're not in touch with that kind of more primal, fundamental part of themselves. Whereas it could be that um, the person who's more ignorant or more simple-minded or even the, 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 the everyday sinner who's repenting has an easier time getting in touch with that part of himself. Okay? So Hasidus is, a, is about experiencing this kind of godly connection and how, and how it affects and changes the flavor of everything in life. But because it's drawing on an, something that innate and natural in every Jew, it has to be applicable to everybody. Okay. Now, to put this in other words, Hasidus is about revealing the soul. And I think, if, to, to just use a, an analogy, the soul should be understood as something distinct from the other parts of a person. So we have our emotions, and that our emotions are not our soul. And by here I mean soul, I mean in the kind of this godly spiritual sense. We have our intellect, we have our values, 
we have our memories, we have all different aspects of our experiences, right? We obviously have our physical bodies. None of those things are the soul. So a person who feels very passionate about mitzvahs, has deep understandings about theology, um, is kind and is generous, may not necessarily be in touch with their soul. Because the soul is a distinct thing. It's different than those other things. Which of course raises the question, what is the soul then? To which my response is, well, what does chocolate taste like? I'm serious, what does chocolate taste like? It tastes like chocolate. If you've never tasted chocolate, and someone were to describe chocolate to you, do you think you would then have a sense of what chocolate tastes like? So what is the only way to know what the revelation of the soul is like? To experience it. So many of the early Hasidic leaders were actually, became Hasidic leaders um, only after having experienced the Hasidus firsthand. So I'm going to tell you a story. There was a a great rabbi, his name was Rabbi Dovber. Um, he was, he later became known as the Magid of Mizrich. Magid means a preacher. His job was that he gave inspirational sermons. And he lived in a town called Mizrich. Actually, Mizrich is probably more of like a, a town, a city, I don't know. And he was a critic of the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement. And he was persuaded, um, it's a long story, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it does matter, but it doesn't, we don't have time to go into it. To go visit the Baal Shem Tov. And so he did so. He made a trip to visit the Baal Shem Tov. And he had a meeting with the Baal Shem Tov. And he was not impressed with this, with this Baal Shem Tov figure at all. Um, he has this private meeting with the Baal Shem Tov. And the Baal Shem Tov tells him the following. He says, one time I was traveling. And I had no hay to feed my horse. And then a merchant showed up with a bale of hay and I could feed my horse. Isn't that amazing? I'm asking you, isn't that amazing? Nobody here seems to be overawed by this, right? The, the Magad Mizrich was also not overawed by this. He thought this was a little bit silly. The Magad Mizrich was a brilliant Torah scholar. He was a, 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 a Kabbalist. He was, he was many things and seemed to him to be a little bit ridiculous. But he figures the Baal Shem Tov is, is famous. People seem to think very highly of him. I should give him a second look, even though he's very critical. Second meeting, the Baal Shem Tov tells him, one time I was traveling and I had no bread to feed my wagon driver. And then a merchant came along and he was selling bread and I could feed my wagon driver. Isn't that amazing? At this point, the Magad of his rich was fed up and decided that that was the end of that and he was leaving. As he was packing and getting ready to go, um, the Baal Shem Tov's um, servant came in and told him, the Magad, to please come back. He wants to meet one more time. So he figures, okay, be polite, come back, but this is it. And the Baal Shem Tov asks the Magad of his rich to read and explain a certain passage in Kabbalah. So he looks at the book, he reads it, he explains it, and the Baal Shem Tov says, that's not what's written there. And so the Magid says, well, if you think you can explain it better, so you explain it. At which point the Baal Shem Tov proceeds to explain, read and explain the passage the exact same way that the Magid did. Difference being that when the Baal Shem Tov explained it, everything being described there, the, Baal Shem, the Magid experienced. When described the higher spiritual worlds and angels, whatever it was, the Magid experienced it. And then the Baal Shem Tov says, the reason why 
you weren't able to do that is because you didn't have the fire. In other words, there's a fire that comes from the soul, and when you're in touch with that, you bring things to life. And without that, it's all cold, it's all dead, you're missing something. And so the Magid became a follower of, and eventually the successor of the Baal Shem Tov. But the idea is that Chassid is ultimately something that had to be experienced. And the idea is that when one person's soul is so revealed, is so vibrant, they have, they have the ability to draw out another person's soul. And so these people, starting with the Balshemtov, who their soul was so intense and so manifest um, that they could awaken the sense of the soul in another person, these became known as Chassidic Rebbes, Tzadikim. And the Balshemtov was able to find 60 people and bring them to the state. And the Magid successor found 120 people. And this became what is known as the Hasidic movement. Where you have these people who their souls are these blazing fires coursing through every fiber of their being, every aspect of their psyche. And they, using all sorts of different mechanisms, are trying to awaken the souls of other people. And those people, as they're touched in that way, become deeply devoted to those tzaddikim, to those leaders, to those rebbes. Um, and this is not putting the emphasis on teaching halacha, Jewish law, or teaching scholarship, or explaining the lessons of the weekly Torah or reading. Okay? And while these tzaddikim could in fact use a Torah teaching as a mechanism to do this, that wasn't necessarily what they did. Sometimes it was through a song, sometimes it was through a story, sometimes it was through doing a miracle, sometimes it was through putting a person through a difficult situation. But the tzaddikim would find different techniques to trigger the other person's soul to awaken or to get them to realize that what they're experiencing is their soul and to value it and cherish it. Like when you're making a fire, if you don't value the small sparks and you're not going to fan the flames and cause it to grow. Um, and in that sense, the real purpose of a teaching of Hasidus was kind of a, a way to reawaken that experience, the way we kind of use, say, like a, a photograph of a very emotionally important event in your life. If you look back at that photograph, it evokes experience. So when a, a follower of one of these tzaddikim would, would say over a teaching he heard from his Rebbe, it would bring him back to that state. Not so much that he was understanding and explaining it, but it's a mechanism to reawaken the soul. And that's how the Baal Shem Tov, the leader of the Hasidic movement, worked, and that's how his followers, and that's generally, and in many other Hasidic groups, that kind of developed the culture. So if you've ever been to a Tish, anyone ever been to a Tish? So you have a guy with a, you know, strimal and, you know, beard, sometimes white, sometimes not yet white, and he's sitting there, and people are standing around and watching him, and then he's eating, maybe he says something, maybe he's singing, maybe he's doing nothing. What the idea is that the human interaction with this person is supposed to help evoke a sense of your own soul in different tzaddikim at different ways. In this context, there really is no idea of teaching Hasidus, explaining Hasidus, writing a book about Hasidus. And so prior to the Tanya, every published work of Hasidus is basically a collection of sayings. And the sayings are, 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 tend to be very terse and very cryptic very open to interpretation, and are really primarily valuable for somebody who already has a sense of what they're supposed to mean in their life. Right. Is everyone getting a kind of a sense of Hasidus before we move into what the Tanya is? Okay. Now, 
the, the Magda Mizrich had, as I said, 120 disciples. Disciples are people that he was able to bring into the state that they could then have that effect on others. Right? That's kind of the difference when we use the difference between a disciple and we say like a follower or a chassid. The chassid is someone whose soul is awakened by the tzaddik. But that doesn't necessarily mean they, they become, they, they have that kind of power in and of themselves. Whereas a disciple is someone who, who the tzaddik shows them how to be a, that, like that themselves and so that they can actually become a replacement when that tzaddik passes on or take that message to another geographic location where that tzaddik no longer, where that tzaddik doesn't live. Um, so the, the Magad Mizrich had 120 disciples. The youngest was Rabbi Shner Zaman of Liadi. Um, and there's a long backstory of how that came about. Um, he also at one originally was not very impressed with the Magad and Chassidus and wanted to leave. Um, but that's a story for another time. And the, he's also known as the Alter Rebbe, the old rabbi in Yiddish, because he was the first of the Chabad Rebbes. Chabad being a specific approach to Chassidus. When he met the Magad of Mizrich, the Alter Rebbe was was um, struggling with two main problems in his life. <coughs> Problem number one was he had no teacher. No one was no one, he had no one to, who was able to teach him. Now, obviously, someone taught him how to read. Right, you're not just born reading. But a, a teacher is really someone who's able to show you things that you cannot see for yourself. Very often. Um, what we, call, what we call a teacher is someone who just has prepared the material before class because the students are too lazy or unmotivated to do the work themselves, and then they make the presenting the material interesting for the students, so the students absorb it. But in principle, if the student was, was sufficiently motivated, they could have gotten everything without the teacher. Okay. So think about it. You were in high school, yes? Okay. Um, if you really wanted, could you have like skipped, I don't know, let's say, chemistry class and work the textbook and do some research and probably gotten most of what you got from the class if you really put your work okay. yeah it's probably harder okay. there's a reason we don't do it that way but the notion of a teacher is somebody who's able to show you things that without them showing to you you would have never been able to see it okay so the analogy that sometimes used is the way a blind person doesn't have access to things that a seeing person does and the seeing person can help guide the blind person of course, in that analogy, it's, not, it's, it's limited because the blind person stays blind. Right? So, the and, and, the, and it's a very important Torah value is to have a teacher, someone who shows you things that you can't arrive at at your own, someone who, who, who lays out the path for you, who, who's able to give you insights that you would never be able to arrive at at your own. Um, that's part of what makes Torah really authentic. And the altar ever had a problem that he didn't have any teachers because everybody that he met, he quickly, he immediately surpassed them. The Alter Rebbe actually, um, as a teenager, had a following of Torah scholars um, who looked to him for guidance and counsel, and, and so he felt this was a serious deficiency in his life. And the second thing is they never had to work hard. That everything he set himself to, he accomplished effortlessly. So he had mastered all of his Torah knowledge without really putting any effort into it. And um, as our sages say, that if a person says, I have not struggled and I have found, we don't believe them. And so he was very suspicious of himself that he'd achieved so much without ever having to apply himself. Now, I don't want you to get the sense that he was lazy. He was not lazy. 
but there's a way in which that you can't apply yourself beyond what what the demands of the task are. I'll just give you an example. If I lift my hat, my hat is only so heavy. I can put as much force as I want into it, but you know, if I put too much force, the hat will just go flying, right? You pick it up, but if I you know, pick it up too intensely, just not going to accomplish anything, but just putting more force in it. Now, if I pick up something that weighs 10 kilo, I'm going to have to put more effort into it, right? If every time the Altebra approached something, whether it's a scholarly task or working on his personal growth, he just accomplished the goal right away, right? And then sets another goal and sets another goal and sets another goal. He's constantly doing, but there's no real effort. And he was very concerned about this. So um, at the age of 18, he set out and he went to Mizrich. And when he encountered the Magid, um, eventually the Magid, well, first off, he found in the Magid someone who could be a teacher, someone who could show him things that he, he could not get on his own. But the other thing is that the Magid told him his life's mission. Would you like to know your life's mission? No. He told him that's a side project. It's an important thing to do. Well, specific form of lighting with the souls of Jews. It says, your job is to figure out how to, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it first in the original, then I will give it my best attempt at a translation, to bring Hasidus into Pneumius, which would roughly translate as to make Hasidus something that can be internalized and integrated. Turn Hasidus from an experience that comes over you into something that you can cultivate and integrate within yourself. Because remember, what was the standard modality of Hasidus? There's a tzaddik, there's someone whose soul is already vibrant and alive and, 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 and aflame, and they draw that out of you in some way, shape, or form. And when that goes away, you're going to try to reconnect. The idea to turn Hasidus into something that you can cultivate within yourself, maintain within yourself, and integrate into your life, or to put it in another way, Hasidus should become normal that had not been done before. And so the Magnum tells the Altar, but this is your goal. This is why you came into the world. And therefore, because that is so demanding and that is going to require every ounce of your strength, therefore, all of your personal Torah knowledge has been given to you for free. In other words, you have to equip somebody for the task. And so if you are, you know, your first few years of life, you'll master the Torah and now you're ready to put effort into what you're really here for. And um, basically, the altar ever worked really hard the rest of his life. Now, so what we have to understand before we get to the Tanya is that the Tanya is not just a work of Hasidus, but it's a work of this new approach that the altar was instructed to develop, um, which later becomes called Chabad Hasidus, which is, and the idea is that Hasidus, that experience should be something that a person generates, maintains, and integrates within themselves. So, I'm gonna use an analogy. Okay. Many things in life make us feel good, yes? Very few people get up in the morning every day with, the, with, with, with genuine confidence that regardless of what happens, I will make sure that I feel good. Right? Most of us, right? Maybe we know that we can do a few things that make us feel good, but then we feel like sometimes we need someone else to help us make us feel good. 
Right? Imagine what it would be like for a person to wake up every morning and say, regardless of what happens to me, whether or not I feel good is something that I am in 100% control over, and it's something that I know, I have that confidence that I can do reliably, consistently, day after day, regardless of circumstance, that I will be in a good mood no matter what. That'd be pretty amazing to be able to do that, right? Okay. The ultimate goal was to teach people how to do that, except instead of feeling good, to feel godly. That the godliness of the soul is like a person because I know how to get in touch with my soul regardless of what happens, day in, day out, consistently, reliably. And is it going to look as intense and as impressive as some other things? No. Because it has to be something that's integrated, something that's normal. Um, is it, and, it, 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 and it's going to therefore have to be very, it's going to have to be a much more honest thing, a much more sincere thing. Because I'm not going to be able to just kind of like rise above myself and transcend myself. I'm going to have to, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to have to fit in with who I am and what my life looks like. So the very famous story that a follower of the Alter Rebbe, who had been uh, taught by the Alter Rebbe these kinds of practices of how to do this, he would spend every day, he would work on praying to, as the Alter Rebbe instructed him, in order to get in touch with his godly soul. And because it was him doing it, you know, some days he was more effective and some days he was less effective, right? Anyone here ever work on anything in life? Right? So when you do that, is every day always the same? Consistent work doesn't mean consistent output, right? You know, sometimes a person's a writer and every day they sit down to write. Sometimes they write one line and sometimes they write five pages, right? That they sit down to write every day. Um, and he had a neighbor who was a follower of another Hasidic Rebbe in the region who was named Rabbi Chaim Chaiko of Amdura. And the follower of this Rebbe of Amdura, every day he would pray and it would just be this very passionate, intense spiritual experience, reliably, day after day. So this chassid felt it wasn't fair. I'm putting in all this work and I get inconsistent results. My neighbor, he just, appro- just approaches the prayer and all of a sudden he's aflame, he's on fire, his soul's ablaze. So he went to the altar but he complained. And the altar's response was, he's not on fire, Rabbi Chaim Chaikel's on fire. Meaning, what you're seeing in your neighbor is not his own soul and his own passion and his own connection. What you're seeing is someone else having an effect on him. Okay. If you want to think of the following analogy, um, have you ever noticed when you buy things from the store, they tend to be the same? Like if you buy a jam, you ever buy jam? If you buy a certain company of jam and you buy their strawberry jam, every single thing, one of the jams is the same, right? Unless they change the recipe. When you make homemade jam, what happens? Doesn't matter how you try to follow the recipe the same way. It's always different. Right? There's something about when it's you're actually doing it and it's authentic, all the subtle variations that you're not always sensitive to, they end up having an influence. So the author was telling him, if you're the one working on, on awakening your soul and integrating your soul and getting in touch with your soul, it's going to look different from day to day because you're in a different place from day to day. So you can consistently get in touch with your soul, but it's gonna look different because sometimes you're in a more expansive state of mind and so your soul's gonna come out in this much more expansive way, much more fluid, and, and sometimes you're, 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 you're more um, constrained or more contrite and getting in touch with your soul is gonna look different. And so you can consistently and reliably be in touch with your soul and integrate it into your life, but it's not gonna have the same experience 
because it's going to be a, a, a melding of your soul and who you are as a person at that particular stage in your life. Whereas the, he's saying this other approach is that the soul is kind of just being set free of the normal human constraints and so it's this amazing transcendent spiritual experience but then you come down to earth and then you want to go back to there. And so one of the hallmarks of Chabad Hasidus is the idea of the unity between the day-to-day human experience and the sensitivity to the soul. Whereas the other Hasidic groups kind of tried to say that you should experience this kind of transcendence of the soul and that almost is an escape from the day-to-day human experience. Which leads to a very important point. As human beings, one of the most important parts of who we are is our intellect, our reason, our rationality. I don't mean to say how academic you are, how much you like learning ideas. I mean to say the fact that the notion that you have to, you have to make sense of things in order to really engage with them, that is, that is very human. Okay? Um, even people that like are really into how you know, we should just not worry about explaining things and we should just live life, when you stop and ask them why, they feel the need to explain why it makes more sense to not worry about making sense of everything. In other words, there's just a very deep part of a human being need to rationalize to make things fit together within their own mind. So one of the other Hasidic Rebbe's, a contemporary of the Alter Rebbe, he said the first thing he does when someone comes to become a follower of his, a Hasid, is he takes away their rationality. Now, I, how do you take away someone's rationality? I have no idea. I'm not a Hasidic Rebbe. And he didn't mean that they'd be stopping rational altogether, but the need to be rational he takes that away so that it doesn't serve as a blockage to the soul. Okay. And I'll just give you a simple example. Have you ever watched a movie? Shame on you. Um, <laughs> no. So if you watch a movie, right, there's, you know, sometimes, you know, and, and this just happens in fiction, right, sometimes there are plot holes, right? Now, in fact, if you really think about it, there's always going to be some plot holes, right? Because human beings are limited. Now imagine you're watching a relatively decent movie, sitting next to somebody who has their eye out for the plot holes, and every time there's a plot hole, they start analyzing the plot hole. At a certain point, you get annoyed. Why? It ruins the movie, right? Like, just trying to make, like something just like suspend the fact that it doesn't make perfect sense and enjoy the plot, right? And so in a sense, it's like, just suspend the fact that your limited rational mind can't wrap itself around the truth of God and just let your soul free. That was a very classic Hasidic approach. But if you're trying to make the soul something that can be integrated within the person, normalized within the person, well then you have to find a way to reconcile the rationality of the person and their soul. That being being immersed in this deep awareness of God and things making sense have to converge in the life of a person, not be divergent. And that's actually Chabad is an acronym for the intellect. There are three parts of the intellect in Kabbalah, Chachamina Das. And so it became known as Chassidus Chabad because as it was the other approaches of Chassidus, this was a, an emphasis on engaging with things rationally because only through that it's possible that the soul can be something that's integrated and normalized in the life of a person. Otherwise, what you're doing is you're making a space in yourself where you're saying, my soul can't be. The part of me that needs to make sense of everything can't, can't have my soul. I have to, it's a trade-off, one or the other. 
And so the Altarebbe started guiding people and teaching people how to awaken and get in touch with their soul in a way that would be integrated within them. And that's hard and it's difficult. And he called this the long short route. Um, the long short route being a reference to a story in the Talmud. There was a great rabbi in the Talmud named Rabbi Yeshua um, ben Chananya. And he was very clever. He was so clever, he was never outsmarted by any man, ever. <coughs> he was only outsmarted three times. Please solve that riddle. He was never outsmarted by any man, and he was only outsmarted three times. A woman. Once was a woman. Animal. No, <laughs> So one was a little boy, and one was a little girl. So, but he was never outsmarted by a man. Only by a woman, a boy, and a girl. The story with the boy is that he approaches a fork in the road, and he asks the boy which way to the city, and the boy points to one way and says, this way is short, but long, and this way is long, but short. So Rabbi Shubhat Khan, he goes the short way and he gets to the city, but between him and the city, there's private property, there's an orchard and you can't trespass. So he comes back and he says, you told me this way was short. And I always imagine a little boy has a little smirk on his face when he says this, but didn't I say it was long? Meaning you get right to where you want to be, but you don't actually get where you want to be. So it's short in journey, but long because you never really arrive. So then he takes the other approach, and it's a much longer road, but eventually he's able to enter the city. And so the al used this as a, as a way to describe the approach of his approach to Chassidus, is that it's much more involved, it's a much more longer process to access your soul and integrate it and normalize it within your life than it is just to like trigger this, this spiritual elation that is standard in the Hasidic movement. But ultimately, you and your soul fuse together and live in this unified, coherent life. Whereas in the approach before the Alter Rebbe, there's always this disconnect that on some level you as a human being and your soul are not really on the same page. And so you now have this kind of, this, this tension within the Hasidic movement. Um, people who felt that the Alter Rebbe was doing something proper and people who felt that the Alter Rebbe was corrupting Hasidus. Imagine that you're listening to a beautiful piece of music and someone says, you know what? You should really stop listening to this music. You should go study music theory and then you'll appreciate the music. Do you think they're right or do you think they're wrong? They're right. What? They're right. They're right. But there is, a, there is some sense in which they're wrong because you, 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 there is a way in which you're stepping away from the experience and if you never make it all the way back around, but if you do make it all the way back around and you do have a deep understanding of music theory, what you'll hear in the music when you listen to it again is much more profound. And that was basically the tension in the Hasidic movement between the non-Chabad approach and the Chabad approach. And it still plays out today in some of the cultural differences. And at this point, there becomes the notion of studying Hasidus. Hasidus meaning Hasidus has to expose us to God and to godliness and to our soul in such a way that we can make sense of it in order to be integrated. And so now Hasidus becomes something that has an element of study, an element of sitting down, asking questions, making sense of things, interpreting, explaining. We still don't get the time, but it's in that 
milieu that the Tanya is written. The Tanya is written as a work of Hasidus, but specifically of this Chabad approach to Hasidus. And one of the consequences of that is, is that the Tanya is a very uninspiring work. Now, um, what do I mean? First of all, sometimes you say that to people and you get offended. It's like, what do you mean? I read the Tanya, I was very inspired. Um, I can say that a cup of water is not very inspiring, but you could, you could relate to something in a way and be inspired by it. What I mean by this is as follows. Um, let's, use the, let's use the example of, of, of oral communication of speaking. If you're trying to move people emotionally as a speaker, you're going to place a lot of emphasis on the way you speak tone of voice, cadence, um, body language, how the words sound, um, what are the, what are the, what are the um, implications of those words. For instance, every word has what I like to call an aftertaste, which aside from what the word means is how the word makes you feel. So for instance, if I say irrational, most people feel like it's not good to be irrational. You ask them why, what, they don't know, but it just doesn't sound nice, right? Um, if you say something's authentic, well, that must be good. Right? So, the, so you, as, as you're trying to move people emotion, try to inspire them, you pay a lot of attention to how that comes off, or, or you know, the form as opposed to the substance. What if you're trying to get somebody to actually really understand something? Which, and that thing is not simple, it's counterintuitive, it's complicated, it's subtle, it's nuanced. As a speaker, you want to actually tone down a lot of that other stuff. You want to be very precise with your wording, you want to be pedantic, right? Um, I once listened to a philosophy lecture. It was my, one of my favorite experiences of listening to a philosophy lecture because it's what no lecture sounds like in real life, but everyone thinks a philosophy lecture should, would sound like. So professors like, and we can see that when a person engages in some kind of experience, there's always the question as to whether the experience is an objective experience of reality external to the psyche of the subjective experience, or in fact, it is simply representation. Like, that was the entire lecture, isn't it? <laughs> like that. <laughs> now, the thing is, if you listen to the wording, he was like, was every sentence was very clearly, precisely thought out, but there was no, like, not inspiring, but if you can get past that it's hard to listen to and really focus, it was actually very, like, it was like he spoke like an essay. Um, the Tanya does not engage in colorful uses of language or motivational speech to get you on board. And in general, Chassidus Chabad doesn't do that. In general, it, uses, it will use parallels and metaphors and analogies, but simply because you need something in order to serve as a, a way to explain something. And that's because the goal here is not like these other Hasidic works were to kind of trigger an experience, but rather to change the what makes sense to us and through that get in touch with the soul. And so if I become very inspired by what it says, but I don't actually understand what it says, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me, then the altar would consider that to be a failure. Not that you haven't gotten in touch with the soul, and not that that has zero value, but it's not his project that his soul descended in the world for. Okay? And there's a very simple measure of what makes sense to you. And we're gonna use this as, as, as 
as I think the, if you want to think about what is the, the, the ultimate objective, you talk about normalizing your soul, something makes sense to you, something really sits well with you. If you have to remember what you learned, it doesn't make sense to you. If you don't remember that you learned it, but you just thinking about the subject on your own, that's what makes sense to you, that's how you approach it, that means it really makes sense to you. So um, I'll give you an example. Do you remember when you first learned, um, would you remember when you first learned that it's important to share? I'm assuming here everybody thinks that it's like, it, is, it, is, it is an important thing to share, right? Okay, do you remember when you first learned that? Who told it to you the first time? Do you remember the life lesson? No. But if you sit and think about it, does it make sense to you? The more like you dwell on it, it makes more and more sense. So what does that mean? At some point, you really made sense to you that, yeah, it's important to share with other people. Maybe it's not infinitely important, maybe it's constrained by other things, but it has some real intrinsic value to it, right? But now if I like learn like this amazing thing on the last week's Parsha, and I'm remembering that I learned it in order to explain it to myself or others, but if I don't remember that I learned it, it's gone, it means it doesn't truly make sense to me. Because for something to truly make sense to you, this is the kind of how, how the author understands, it truly makes sense to you means that's how your mind works on its own. Your mind, in other words, gets reshaped. And as our mind gets reshaped, our personality gets reshaped, and we become the kind of person that our soul naturally belongs to. In other words, that what we're doing is we're becoming a fitting vessel for the soul, so the soul fits in a very natural way. And so the knowledge of a bunch of information and the ability to explain it is not really what it means making sense. What it means making sense, it means it really, upon personal introspection and reflecting upon it, like that becomes how your mind works. If you want to think of this in a physical way, anyone here play an instrument? No one plays an instrument. Used to play the cello. Okay, so when you when you when you play a musical instrument, at the beginning you have to like tell your your limbs what to do, right? You have to tell them how to how to hold it and how to do it, right? But over time, what ends up happening is you develop this muscle memory, right? And if you develop that muscle memory sufficiently, like even after years of never picking it up, right? You can pick it up, and your body just knows what to do, right? Now. If that happens, not on the level of, the, of, of, our, of our anatomy, but on the level of our psyche, that's what it means that something really makes sense to us. Okay? The fact that when I sit there in kind of a detached academic sense, I can explain something is a very superficial and maybe a stage in something making sense, but not really what making sense is. And so that's what the author that was trying to figure out. How do I get these experiences of chassidus and the truths that, of, of God to make sense in such a way that it really reshapes the inner terrain of the person so the soul fits. The soul fits into the psyche of the human being like a hand fits in a glove. And then you don't need to like inspire yourself and awaken yourself. And how do you develop a whole lifestyle and a whole practice and a whole thing in order to do that? And that was very different than the standard approach of other Hasidic renders. Um, and eventually, when um, private guidance became unfeasible, untenable. There, there's too many people. Um, the Altarba started um, writing written guidance. And that written guidance eventually he put it together in a book. 
and that became the Tanya. Which means, by the way, this is very important, if the Tanya is that kind of a guide, the Tanya has to be systematic. Most works of, most Hasidic works um, are not systematic. Okay? Even the other Chabad teachings, while the Chabad teaching itself might be systematic, but one teaching, another teaching, the entire Tanya is written in a way that he starts with fundamentals and builds on things. Because the idea is that it's setting out an entire program of how to live this kind of life. In order that the soul should really fit in the life of a person in a very integrated, normalized way. And so that means you have to start with first things first and second things second, and things build on themselves. And that also means that your ability to, in life, really um, appreciate what a particular chapter is saying depends very much on how well you appreciated what previous chapters have said. Now, it doesn't mean you have to master 100% chapter one before you move to chapter two, but it means that degree to which you have internalized chapter one is the degree to which you're able to appreciate what's happening in chapter two, and so on and so forth. And we, of course, grow, so it's not like you, you come back again. If you think about it like walking, you don't move your right foot all the way to one side of the room, and then you move your left foot, you move your right foot a little bit before your left foot and then your left foot catches up and moves a little bit ahead. And so that's the way this works, is that you, um, the, 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 the custom is that Hasidim continuously learn Tanya over and over again, and each cycle through, you appreciate it in a, in a deeper way, but it is still very systematic. Okay? Um, because it's not just an idea or just something to inspire a person. It's supposed to rebuild from the ground up everything about who we are, what the world is, what we think God is, so that we can become the kind of person that our soul naturally fits into our lives rather than that tension between who I am as a person and the beauty and richness and depth of the godly soul. That's why he wrote the Tanya. That's what the Tanya is and that's why we're studying it. Okay, questions? Before we move on to the second part, or I guess it's the third part. So I did Chassidus, what the Tanya is, and now we're gonna, we need to summarize 15 chapters of Tanya. Yes? Um, you said um, when a person came to somebody to become a Chassid, um, they were told to throw away a rationale. No, there was a tzaddik, there was a tzaddik, a contemporary of the altar named of Karlin, and he said the first thing he does to the people who come to him is he takes away their rationality. He has a way of like figuring out how to just get to them. When it comes to God, the, the, ration, the need to be rational just shuts off. So they can be rational about business, and they're rational about their Talmudic studies, and rational about like other stuff. But when it comes to God, they just they lose the need to be rational, which is great. But it also means that there's a part of yourself where the godliness never reaches. And and um, and that was actually they were close friends, but they had very very serious disagreements about this. Well, anything can sound cultish. In fact, I I, I thought. Many, many years ago, the first time I, I, I brought this up in a class, should I rephrase it to convey the idea in such a way that it doesn't sound cultish? And I decided not to. <laughs> and the reason was, because I think it's a very important part of, and I, I mentioned this previously about Chassidus and Chabad Chassidus, is learning to get past how a word sounds and going to what we actually mean by them. Right? All, there are many situations where we think that the appropriate thing to do is to turn off our need to be rational in order to more properly experience whatever that, that thing is. 
And the question is just, is this one of those situations and is that appropriate? Right? Now, to deny the importance of a person being rational about all, at all, about anything, I mean, that's pretty inhuman, right? But like, you know, a person standing, you know, forget the plot holes, right? A person sit, sitting, you watch, watching a movie and saying, you know this was produced by a company with interest in making money, and that's why they did this, and that's why they did that. Like, it's like, just shut up and watch the movie. <laughs> right. And we do this in all sorts of things, right? The argument of, I don't want to go stop listening to music and sit and study music theory because I don't want to lose out on the immediacy of the experience. There's something that's, 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 not, a, that's not an invalid argument. But I, I decided to say it that way so that we were forced to have this little conversation. We're not forced to, it prompts it. Okay. So... 15 chapters of Tanya. Can we do 15 chapters in 18 minutes? I'm thinking that I'm not gonna try to do it in 18 minutes. I think I'm just gonna go at what I think is a quick pace. Um, Now, what I'm not going to do is I'm not gonna go chapter by chapter summary. I don't think that's a useful thing for people who haven't learned it. What I wanna do is cover the major themes and make sure that we have a good understanding of those major themes. Um, so, you know, some things will get, you know, collapsed all to one, and some things will get developed at length, so that when we start chapter 16, we can kind of be all on the same page. So, the, the first thing is that one of the, one of the things that the Altima starts off the Tanya with is that we have many sources in the oral Torah, in the Talmud and in the Zohar and other, um, where we, we see descriptions of the Jewish people or individual Jews being described um, with very judgmental labels. The judgmental labels are tzaddik, which means a righteous person, and a rasha, which means a wicked person. Um, we also have a in-between category, which is creatively titled the in-between category, or in Hebrew, Bainani, which literally means the between category. So if you like, yeah, right. So if you go order a latte in Hebrew, and they ask you what you want and you want a medium, you say benoni, because it just means in the middle or medium. Yeah. So you have righteous people, wicked people, and then people who are not really either, so they're in the middle. Okay, good. More particularly, this actually gets divided into five groups. Okay. So you have someone who is completely righteous, completely wicked, not completely righteous, not completely wicked, and then finally, in between. And the Alter Rebbe establishes very clearly on that in most of the times where these terms are used, not all, most of the times these terms are used, these are not being actually used to describe the person's deservedness when it comes to reward and punishment. There is a concept in Judaism it's one of the 13 principles in Judaism that God rewards people and punishes people in accordance with their actions. And so persons whose negative actions outweigh their positive and is thus ultimately deserving of punishment would be deemed a wicked person. A person whose positive actions outweigh their negative actions would therefore deserving of reward. That would be considered a righteous person. But the Alter Rebbe, I'm not going through the, through, through the argument, but the Alter Rebbe's understanding is that most of the time that these terms are being used, they're not describing this question of, is the person deserved of punishment or reward? 
it's describing the kind of person. In other words, it's describing the mode in which that person lives their life. And therefore, it's a much more personal, intimate question. And therefore, instead of thinking of these words as words of judgment in the sense of praise and condemnation, they should be understood as judgment in the sense of like diagnostic. Right? If you go to the doctor and the doctor says, I know that some people think this is a bit controversial, but we're going to say that the doctor says that your blood pressure is too high or you are too overweight or you don't exercise enough, right? The idea is not to make you feel bad about that. The idea is that knowing that that is the case now makes, creates the possibility for changing those things, right? But if a person is under the impression that their blood pressure is as it should be when it's really too high, then they're not going to do the things needed to lower their blood pressure. So the Alter Rebbe understands that when we say this person is wicked or this person is righteous, or this person is in the middle, we're talking about the way the person lives their life. Um, the kind of mental space they operate in. Is that the right space for a Jew? If that's the right space for a Jew to be living their life in, then that person is called a righteous person. If that is not the right space for a Jew to be living in, and I mean that kind of mental emotional space, then that person would be called a rush, a wicked. The goal here, the, the goal here, not to get the person to feel bad and not to that the person deserves to be punished. You're only punished for your misdeeds, but to realize that the headspace, the emotional space that you're living in, is not where you should be, and you should change that. And then, what would be the bane in that context? Well, so let's say you go to the doctor. I went to the doctor. I went to the doctor. And I, uh, my father says that, you know, when you get to be my old age, you should have a physical once a year. Which apparently is not a common thing in Israel. So I go to the doctor and I say, um, my father says I'm supposed to get a physical every year, so I want a physical. He says, okay, well, you should get a, do these standard blood tests. And I get the blood test results and I go back to the doctor. And like, so this blood test is like, it's not so great. I ask him, what about this? He says, well, it's not dangerous. It's not great. Fine, just keep an eye on it. So what's that? Am I in ideal health when it comes to that test result? But is the doctor willing to say I'm unhealthy and I need to do something about it? No. No, there's, an, there's a space where it's not a problem, but it's not ideal, right? So what's that space called? That's the Bainini space. So the idea being is that every Jew, broadly speaking, is either living in a space that is problematic and they need to fix that. That would be the Russia space. Or they're living in the ideal space that a Jew should be living in, right? That their, their mental, emotional space is, the, is ideal. That would be a tzaddik. Or it's not ideal, but it's acceptable. It's okay. And that would be the Bainan. Right? And then moving forward, what the Alter wants a person to do is to understand what what goes into these different spaces? What defines them? What categorizes them? And how much control do we have about changing them? And that's going to basically be 14 chapters of Tanya. And we're going to go into more of the details, but 14 chapters of Tanya is basically centered around that issue. What defines the, the, the space that is problematic, the Russia space? What defines the ideal space of the tzaddik? What defines the in-between space? How do you move between them? How much control do you have? Right. And 
I think if you if you stop and pause for a second, the, the, the importance of this should be obvious because it's very important to know what the R ideal should be. It's very important to know what is problematic, and it's very important to know what is acceptable. Right? And, and that's true in any area in life, right? Let's say finances. Is it important to know what an ideal financial state would be? Yeah. Is it important to know what an unacceptable financial state, a problematic financial situation is? Sure. And it's also important to know what's not, what's acceptable, but not ideal. Okay. If you are in a, say, a financial situation that is not, a, not an acceptable financial state, you need to make serious changes to get out of that state, right? But if your state is acceptable, but not ideal, right? You can aspire and work on it, but there's also a level of acceptance that's, that's, that's reasonable to have. And so when we're talking about the emotional and intellectual and mental space that we're in and how that relates to our soul, we need to know, is this completely problematic? Is this ideal? Or is this something that's not problematic, but it's also not ideal, but it's livable, we can work with that. And that's how the Altar understands it when the Talmudic sages and the Zohar were referring to these these different types of people, that's what they were talking about. Not, or is this a good person or a bad person in the sense of deserving of reward or punishment. That's a simple calculation of behavior. And you could have two people who are more or less the same person and one has, in a particular circumstance, done something very, very heinous and deserves to be punished. And this person who's basically the same has done something very, very heroic and deserves to be praised. I mean, one of the things that if anybody ever does chaplaincy in prisons, um, is you'll discover is that people who do horrible things are often, well not always, quite normal and just like you and made one or two very bad decisions. Okay? Um, which is reason for compassion for such people. Doesn't mean to suspend judgment of their wrong behavior. And it also means a lot more humility on our part. Right? That um, you know, a person could also make a very bad decision. But if we're talking about the kind of person you are, the kind of space you're living in, that's a very different question. Okay. Um, so, how do we know if you are in the Russia headspace or the Tzaddik headspace or the Benini headspace? What can we use as a litmus test? So, it's very simple. Sinning. The violation, the, and by here I mean sinning, willful sinning. Conscious sinning. Not sinning because you didn't know better because there's just there's so many mitzvahs and you just you know it takes time to learn everything. If you are willing to do something which transgresses the will of God because of some other consideration, what does that say about your basic standpoint vis-a-vis -vis God? What kind of priority does he have in your life? Top priority. Middle priority, low priority. Well, clearly can't be top priority, right? Because then you would have prioritized not sitting. Does he have like second best, third best? So I'm going, this doesn't say explicitly in the Tanya, but if you learn it and think about it, 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 it comes out of what the Tanya says. And because we're doing a summary, I'm gonna approach it this way. That means God has actually the lowest level of priority. And I want you to think about it like this. Objectively speaking, how much of a priority should God have in the life of a person? Being that God, after all, is the creator of reality, the source of all morality, the 
essence of life, etc., etc., etc. How big of a priority should God be? What? Sizable. Sizable. <coughs> Is it? We're going to just be purely like academic for a second. Can you think of anything that should arguably be a greater priority than God? Okay. What makes family valuable? What generates family? What creates family? What creates the human need for family? So therefore, the value of family is a derivative. So this goes back to the very thinking deeply about what we mean by God. Every other value is derivative from God or it's false. That's what it means to believe in God. Which leads us to a disturbing corollary. If I think something is more important than God, there's like kind of, kind of an implicit denial of God altogether in that. There's an implicit kind of idolatry there saying that there's God and then this thing has independent value. So that means my sense of God is not a true sense of God at all. If God really is the one that creates everything, generates everything, gives the value of everything, imbues life into everything, then whatever is really valuable in life is somehow a glimmer of God. What then? And so if in my life I actually disregard his will for something else, that means in some sense I have no sense of God. That my sense of God is just kind of like a fantasy, an illusion. It's to borrow an idea that the Rambam speaks about. If a person were to say that an elephant is a, I don't know the exact description he uses, but an elephant is a one-legged creature with bat-like wings that ha- and make, he uses uh, different things. One-legged creature with bat-like wings, the head of a human with one eye coming out of its nose, right? It's not that the person believes weird things about elephants, it's just that the person believes in the non-existent thing and calls it by the word elephant. A god who can be made secondary to some other value is not a god at all. And so what does that say about us as Jews and our relationship with our soul if we're willing to set aside God's will for anything? There's something very messed up about that. Now, it could be common, it is common. It's a common problem we all have. And it's not something that a person therefore should feel like, ooh, I'm such a horrible person because of it. But if we have this soul which has a a sensitivity to God, we must not have a very good relationship with that soul if we're willing to act knowingly in ways that violate God's will that means we're, we're really disconnected from our own sense, from, from our own soul, our own authentic sense of God. And that is an uncomfortable message to hear. Because it's uncomfortable, does it make it not true though? No. Is the goal to feel bad about this? What's the goal? Yeah. Now that I know that that's the problem, now I can hopefully figure out ways of beginning to address it. And going back to what I said, the Alturba's view of addressing this problem, is this a, going to be like a quick fix solution or is it going to be a long process? But a process that works, okay. How would I know if I'm living in the ideal state, the tzaddik mindset? Other than God, what that what else is important in life? What? Okay. Nothing. So if I was living in the tzaddik mindset, what would the only thing that would be important to me would be? The only thing I would desire would be? Now, to be fair, can Hashem be found in all sorts of ways? 
Hashem is not just found by you know, wrapping yourself up in a talus and, 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 and you know, facing the wall. Hashem can be found, right, in all sorts of things. Right? So the issue is not that, oh, the tzaddik doesn't engage in, like, quote, normal everyday behavior. It's that the tz- what the tzaddik is, desires is the connection to Hashem that is found in all of those things, which is the truth and life and everything. Whereas the Rasha sees all of those things as a contradiction to God and prioritizes them sometimes more, sometimes less over God. And so the, the Rasha has this very warped sense of God and very warped sense of their own soul. And the Tzaddik had their souls completely vibrant and healthy. Now, what about a person who's in the middle? They're not willing to sin because they recognize that God is the highest priority, but they still feel desire and attachment to other things. So there's something not ideal about that because their sense of God is still somewhat distorted. Their sense of their soul is somewhat off. But they at least have no kind of the basic level down that Hashem is the real source of things, the real basis of everything, and therefore Hashem really is my highest priority. And so in very, very simple terms, the Rasha can be seen by a person's willingness to transgress God's will. The fact that a person is willing to do something that God says not to do or not do something God says to do that's a symptom of this Russia mindset. It's not the cause, it's the symptom. The fact that a person desires nothing other than closeness to Hashem, that's symptomatic of the tzaddik mindset. It's not the cause, but it's a symptom. But a person who has desires and attachments to things other than Hashem, on the one hand, but Hashem is such a priority that would never willingly jeopardize that connection and transgress His will, that's that kind of in-between mindset. That doesn't tell us how those mindsets are generated. It doesn't tell us how to work on them. But it gives us kind of a, 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 a test to use to figure and evaluate which category we're in. Okay? Now, skipping. Because I'm not going to... The goal is to get the theme, so I'm not going in, in order. Um, there's a reason why it's in order. And if, and if we're learning inside, each thing builds on stuff very nicely. But because we're just getting the general themes, I'm going to be skipping a little bit. What the Alter says is like this. To move yourself from the Russia mindset to the Bainani mindset is something that everybody has the ability to do. They might need guidance as to how to do it, and they might need to work at it to be better at it and consistent, but everybody can, with their own efforts, tap into innate capacities and potentials to bring themselves to the point where they are not in the Russia mindset. They're the Bainini mindset. Now, just because you can doesn't make something easy. However, to be in the Tzaddik mindset requires special divine assistance and a unique soul. Not everybody has the capacity to really be in that state. And even if you have the capacity, it's, you still need special divine assistance. And so the Alteba concludes from this something very important. If you are in the Russia mindset, you need to see that as a problem that needs to be addressed and that you can address it and you can work on it. But if you find yourself stuck in the Bainini mindset and not able to progress the Tzaddik mindset, that doesn't mean you should stop trying. He says you definitely should continue to try. We're commanded to try and aspire for that. But you shouldn't see that as necessarily a sign that you're doing something wrong. And what that means very practically is that if I'm willing 
to disregard what Hashem's will in my life for some other thing, I should see that as a problem and try and figure out how to solve that so that's not my mindset. And I have to believe that that's possible for me to do. Then the how we're going to talk about in the next class. But if after all the spiritual work, I still feel like as much as Hashem is my top priority, I feel, still feel pulled by other things, I should realize that, okay, maybe that's the best I can achieve and I can aspire to more, but I shouldn't necessarily see that as a failure that needs to be worked on. And this, this leads to a very key idea is that the Altar says is that a bainani should be what we expect of ourselves, but it's, even though it's sadik is what we aspire to be. Okay? So tomorrow what I'm going to do is I'm going to start talking about some of the concepts and practices that help us understand what causes these different mindsets and how we move between them. Okay? And once we have all that done, that'll get us through 14 chapters of Tanya, then I'll do a little brief thing about chapter 15, and then we'll be prepared to actually start chapter 16, which will be next week, God willing. Good? Thank you. Um, have the shluchas decided what we're learning tomorrow?